Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Happy Resurrection Week. It is great, outstanding, exceptional Friday. They refer to it as Good Friday because of what Jesus did for us. And praise God for those three words, it is finished. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for that blessed hope that we have And thank you for the sacrifice and the blood of Christ. We are saved, we are healed, free, delivered, redeemed from the curse of the law. We praise you for your goodness, and we thank you, God, for this foreordained plan. And we know it's only Friday, but Sunday is coming. We praise you for the truth of the resurrection, that so much was recorded in your word, Lord, in the Bible. And we thank you that we have that. We are not flying blind here. Uh, We praise you, Jesus for overcoming the world. We thank you for the joy set before you. You made it to the cross, despising the shame. And we thank you now for interceding for us. We thank you for every good and perfect gift. And we lift up this hour to you. We pray that people would be informed, challenged, and encouraged. And we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, just to speak freely here in this country um, while we have the religious freedoms we so often take for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today uh, we are going to talk about COVID craziness. (laughs) So many subjects from prophecy to taking scriptures out of context to uh, Christians and self-quarantine and religious freedom, church and state issues. Let's get right to it with our guest. We welcome back Dr. Andy Woods, Andy Woods Ministries. Thank you so much for coming on again, Andy. David, it's uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, first of all, how are things down in Texas in regards to all this? A lot of churches I know are online, and yours is too. What what are some things uh, you can share with us? What's going on down south? Well, you know, it's just a time of confusion. Um, <clears throat> part of the problem is we're all re- receiving contradictory information, and um, you know, we're just kind of going county by county who to adhere to. Our particular church, Sugarland Bible Church, is located in Fort Bend County, and so we're under their regulations concerning social distancing. And until we know more, until the facts become clear, you know, at least for the next couple weeks, you know, our mindset is to, you know, follow the the um, regulations from the uh, local government. And that's what we're doing here too. I think most states are. There are some states that are. Um, not under any restrictions because they don't have a lot of cases in the entire state. And so it's a very fascinating time. Um, We will get into this more, but some Christians are struggling with this, Andy, because they're thinking, well, wait a minute, what about our Constitution? What about our freedoms, our religious liberties? Churches should be able to meet no matter what. But we do have to uh, try to get the information and dissect it and find out what might be uh, true um, don't believe anything coming out of China, by the way, but we can <laughs> talk about that later. Um, what would you say to people who are thinking, wait a minute now, this is this a, a, a church and state issue, or, or is this something that we are obeying government above God? 
Well, I'm glad people are thinking that way because this is a time for concern related to those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, a quote that I've been using lately from a, uh, a particular Texas politician, he said, you know, freedom is tested, you know, in the midst of a crisis. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is our rights in the United States come from God. You see that clearly in the Declaration of Independence. They're called unalienable rights, and unalienable basically means no lien attached to them. They're ours because they come from God, not the state, and they're not subject to being taken away in the midst of a crisis. So I'm I'm in favor of kind of settling down and just getting all the information and, uh, you know, being cautious. But eventually, the month of April is going to be over, and we're going to move into the month of May and if the government is still, you know, telling us you can't go to church and all of these things, I think we need to start rethinking things pretty mm-hmm. clearly and carefully as Christians, because I don't think the Bible teaches unlimited compliance to the government no matter what, any more than when the Bible says a wife is to submit to her husband, nobody would take that to mean that the wife should submit to her husband even when her husband abuses her. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we respect the government, but the government can go too far. Acts chapter 5, verse 29 says, you know, we must obey God rather than man. Mm -hmm. So if we get through into May and we still have these very draconian restrictions, then I think we need to start really thinking through as Christians what we're going to do about it. So... I think there is a case for civil disobedience in the Scripture. You see it in Daniel 3 mm-hmm. yes. and Daniel 6, you know, related to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying no to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel did the same thing related to Darius when the Persians came to power in the lion's den chapter. So this is a time where we really need to be in prayer and thinking very carefully about what God would have us to do. Amen, brother. Um, Before we get to a couple specific scriptures that we might be taking out of context relating to this time that we're in, I want to direct people to a link that we'll have in our podcast post uh, that links to you. Uh, So it's your blog. You say you haven't posted in it in a while, but you've got four very helpful resources. What does Bible prophecy have to say about COVID-19? This, and this one I thought was phenomenal, answering the seven most commonly asked theological and biblical questions about COVID-19. We'll get into a couple of those today and whatever else you'd like to share. And then part one and two of COVID-19 and world transformation. So great resources. We will link that up from uh, Dr. Andy Woods. So let's go to Isaiah 26. And I love verse three. I've quoted it so much. The steadfast of mind you will keep in peace because he trusts in you. And then verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God, we have an everlasting rock. This is a song of trust, um, a verse of God's protection. But down in verse 20, some people are using this and taking it out of context. I believe you can expound on that. You know much more about this than I do. But I just understand from a contextual point of view here, they're saying regarding the coronavirus, This says, come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you. In other words, shut in, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. There's been people that have posted this and shared this, even some people I know up in Canada who are not even believers in Christ. And they're saying, hey, this is something we just need to do. God's going to pass over us, so to speak. 
Please uh, give us clarity on that idea, Pastor Andy. Yeah, you know, people and some major ministries, you know, have posted this. It's been kind of surprising, but they either take it as it's directly speaking to COVID-19 today in 2020, or it's speaking of the rapture of the church, you know, at the end of the church age. And I don't think that verse is saying what everybody's saying that it is saying, for the primary reason that the Old Testament prophets could see the first advent of Christ, and they could see prophetically the second advent of Christ, but they could not see the valley between the two. That was a mystery, and you have to wait for New Testament revelation for that uh, mystery to be filled in. You know, primarily Jesus in Matthew 13 is filling in that gap, mm. and the Apostle Paul with his 13 letters, particularly the book of Ephesians, you know, chapters 2 and 3, you know, is filling in that gap. And so consequently, Isaiah 26, verse 20, really has nothing to do with the present age. It has nothing to do with the rapture, which ends the present age, because the rapture is called a mystery. Paul defines a mystery in Colossians 1.26 as the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested. And that's what basically a mystery is. It's, a, it's an unknown truth now revealed. And the fact of the matter is the present age, the time period between the two advents of Christ, uh, was something that Old Testament prophets did not see and could not see. And so therefore, what is Isaiah 26, verse 20 actually talking about? What it's talking about is Israel's distress in the future tribulation period, and how a remnant is going to be saved through that distress, and that remnant is going to make it all the way to receiving their resurrected bodies at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. And a, a parallel passage that develops this more clearly uh, is the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where it says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued and then verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the bottom line is it's not talking about the present age, which was a mystery to the Old prophets, Old Testament prophets, but rather what it is talking about is Israel's future tribulation period, conversion and resurrection at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. It's not dealing with church-age truth, in other words. And it has nothing to do with uh, a coronavirus or a pestilence or anything like that. Like some are using that kind of like as a protective verse as the people put the blood over their doorpost during Passover. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not talking about that for the simple reason that the Old Testament prophets couldn't see the intervening age and the coronavirus is happening in the you know current <laughs> intervening age between the two advents of Christ. And so it's just it's just people they haven't been taught basic Bible study method and they haven't been taught you know the great doctrine of dispensations which is what I'm sort of revealing or explaining here 
And so if you're left to your own devices and your pastors aren't explaining these things to you, and people just willy-nilly grab verses and throw them around as, as whatever's right in their own eyes sort of thing. It's interesting because we're seeing a little bit of the fruit of that, Andy, because of the lack of solid teaching on prophecy, on Bible prophecy and um, context. Oh, my goodness, because of uh, the oftentimes uh, topical sermons we hear. But in Matthew 24, uh, verse 7, these are signs of the end time, signs of Christ's return. The disciples asked Jesus. He responded to them. First thing out of his mouth, see to it that no one misleads you. Verse 7, it says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But over in Luke, it says, I believe, pestilences. But Jesus says these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Is this where the coronavirus or something that we're experiencing now, this pandemic, is? does this fall under that? Yeah. Well, Matthew 24, verse 7 in the King James Bible does say pestilences, and so does the cross-reference in Luke that you mentioned, Luke 21, Mm -hmm. you know, verse 11. And so people see the word pestilence, and they immediately connect it, you know, with the coronavirus. But the reality of the situation is when you look very carefully at Matthew 24, and study the birth pangs in Matthew 24, you'll see that they line up chronologically with the seal judgments in the book of Revelation. Hmm. For example, false Christs are described in Matthew 24, verse 5, and also in the seal judgments in Revelation 6, verse 2. Uh, You just march right on down the list. Same with war, famine, death, martyrs, earthquakes and global evangelism. And so the reality of the situation is Matthew 24, I believe, is actually describing the seven-year tribulation period. Hmm. In fact, when you look at Matthew 24, verse 15, you'll see Matthew, or Jesus, as Matthew is recording Jesus' words, quoting Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which is our best description of the tribulation period, which is bracketed. You know, it's bracketed by a seven-year time period. It begins with the Antichrist making a peace treaty with unbelieving Israel. It ends with the second advent. And right in the middle of that time period, you have the desecration of the temple. And that's where you put the birth pains, and that's where you put the seal judgments, in the book of Revelation, followed by the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. And so what triggers that time period, Revelation 5, is Jesus in heaven opening a seven-sealed scroll. Mm. So until that scroll is opened, and by the way, that scroll, once it opens, triggers all of the judgments in the book of uh, Revelation telescopically. Mm. But once, you know, until that happens... No one can say that this is that, you know, COVID-19, you know, is the pestilence described in Matthew 24. COVID-19, I'm not trying to marginalize it. It's very serious. But the book of Revelation, the judgments are far worse. By the time you move from Revelation 6 to Revelation 9, one half of the world's population is destroyed. And what are they talking about with COVID-19, less than 1% of the world's population? 
And so all of that to say is I don't really think that COVID-19 is, you know, one of the judgments or the birth pangs. I think what COVID-19 really is, is ramifications of living in a cursed world. Mm-hmm. Genesis three seventeen through 19 tells us that when Adam sinned, the ground, you know, would rebel against him. And Romans 8 tells us that this world that we're in is groaning because of original sin. And that's where you put COVID-19. And by the way, any other calamity of history, you know, the Black Plague or whatever. And the problem is every time one of these things happens, you know, everybody jumps to the book of Revelation. But the book (laughs) of Revelation and Matthew 24 has a specific context to it, and that context hasn't been activated yet. I think one of the frustrating things is people want to find some, make some sort of sense out of this because of maybe the misinformation you mentioned that comes from uh, whether it be federal or state governments or coming out of China, and we're looking at world stats and just comparing, for example, the seasonal flu, the regular fr- flu, which can, in America anyway, take up to like around 50,000 lives in a year. From I've seen different uh, you know stats on that. But right now, the COVID-19 coronavirus, since I think we've heard about it in, since January, February, March, we're into April, 16,700 deaths, I believe, is if this is up to date or close to it. So we're, we're kind of not keeping this in perspective. We are looking at the United States because we're concerned because we live here. We are concerned about the world and how other countries are handling this and the spread of it. Um, but we can only affect w- what's in our backyard here. So what can you say that would help us take it a step okay, away from, you know, Trying to, trying to say, all right, this is Bible prophecy. Now, we understand that. There's a lot of things, sin and death and sickness and disease that are in this earth. But, Pastor Andy, help us. We've got a couple minutes before we need to take a break. But people that are saying this, they're, maybe they're operating in fear instead of trusting the Lord, instead of faith, and they're just kind of not feeling secure because of the reaction of other people around them because they're looking at the number of deaths and not understanding. And this is so much lower than so many other causes of death? Well, I would say that's a good desire people have to make sense of it, and I would actually argue that God put that desire in the hearts of people. Hmm. Uh, People want to know where we came from, and they want to know where we're going. And the reality of the situation is the Bible, rightly interpreted, will reveal those things to us. And the more you become familiar with what the Bible actually reveals for the future, the less you're swept into, you know, what Paul calls in Ephesians 4, being tossed about by every wind of doctrine and the deceitful scheming of men. And so this is a time really to get grounded in theology. Mm. And if you get grounded in the right understanding of it, and there's a lot of resources out there on how to get grounded... Uh, you're less likely to be swept in by the casualty of the day or the hysteria of the day. Mm. Amen. We're going to take a break. We're with Dr. Andy Woods, Andy Woods Ministries. And when we come back, we're going to ask him the question, how is the coronavirus setting the stage for the coming cashless society predicted in Revelation 13? And another question we'll get to, Lord willing and time willing, is God using COVID-19 to judge the world for sin. More with Andy Woods when we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth 
with David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Dr. Andy Woods, and um, we are going to jump now to Revelation chapter 13. And we know that more people are using debit cards, credit cards, and uh, their cash is safely in the bank, maybe. I don't know about safely (laughs) or at home. Um, But now a lot of people are thinking the coronavirus is helping set the stage for this coming cashless society. It's, it's predicted in uh, Revelation. Andy, would you please uh, share what you can uh, inform us about on that issue? Yeah, I mean, the key verse verses would be Revelation 13, 16 through 18, which says of the Antichrist, he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or forehead, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, I should be clear that the mark of the beast system is not something that will be you know, in full swing until the Antichrist comes on the scene and implements it, according to Revelation 13, verse 14. And we know from Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7, that the Antichrist can't come on the scene right now because something is restraining him. You know, I think the restrainer is the Holy Spirit through the Church. Mm-hmm. So as long as the Church is here, the Antichrist can't come to power. However, having said all that, the mark of the beast system, I don't think, is something that just can happen in a vacuum. I think humanity has to be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. And so why I don't think the Book of Revelation's prophecies are being directly fulfilled right now, what I do think is happening is the stage is prophetically being set, you know, for the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so now, you know, we're being told by some that cash, you know, is dirty, so it has to be phased out. We see politicians putting into the uh, stimulus packages, um, and I'm not sure if these made it to the final versions, but what's called the digital dollar. And we see people like Bill Gates, you know, trumpeting this idea of, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of marrying vaccination with Mm -hmm. uh, microchip technology. Yikes. And, you know, what category (laughs) do I put all this stuff in? I put it in not, we're under the mark of the beast right now, but clearly, you know, the Lord is setting the stage or allowing the stage to be set for the mark of the beast system that we we do know will come to earth one day and will reach its... Zenith in Revelation 13 and 14. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating that we are just gradually progressing toward these biblical prophecies. I want to clarify something. Maybe this is for me personally, but maybe it'll help our listeners as well. I was reading uh, in Ezekiel, um, and in Ezekiel chapter 9, um, it's a vision that uh, God gave of e- to Ezekiel of the slaughter of uh, the people of Israel. And in verse 4, it says, The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even though, even through Jerusalem. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. In other words, the faithful, the righteous, the remnant are getting a mark, and they're being saved. Isn't that kind of just the opposite of what we're seeing in Revelation as far as the mark of the beast? 
Yeah, well, one of the things that's very, very interesting when you study the book of Revelation is how Satan is a great imitator of God. Mm. Um, That shouldn't surprise us, because the prophet Isaiah, chapter 14, around verse 14, Satan said, you know, when he fell, uh, I will be like the Most High. And so what God does, Satan imitates, you know, God, God... God has a trinity, Satan has one, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. Hmm. And in Ezekiel 9 and also Revelation 7, you see that the mark that God puts in Revelation 7 on the 144,000... That's right. You know, you know that's actually a good thing. Yeah. It's, it's protective. Hmm. And so Satan says, well, if that's what God's doing, then I'll have my own mark system. And so he has his own mark system there in Revelation 13, verses uh, 16 through 18. So I, I kind of chalk up a lot of this as Satan being the great duplicator and, and counterfeiter of God. Mm, fascinating. Thank you for making that connection for us, that Satan's the great imitator. Um, next question I wanted to ask you, Pastor Andy, and uh, you have talked about this. I know, on, by the way, I want to link to your pastor's point of view. Uh, very informative, very well done, I believe. It takes you through looking at Scripture in light of what's happening in the world and our country. Um, is God using COVID-19 to judge the world for sin? Well, as I, we tried to kind of get into before related to the birth pains, the judgment of God, the only judgment of God that we're told about in the Bible that's future is bracketed, you know, in that seven-year tribulation period. And there's very real... Uh, markers which launch that period and which end that period. And it's in that time period that Revelation 6 through 19 puts the seals and the trumpets and the golden bowl of wrath judgments. And so until that time period starts, and we're not in it now, I don't think any person can say COVID-19 or any other world calamity, for that matter, is the direct judgment of God. When people do that, they're assuming uh, some kind of, maybe they think they have some kind of private revelation from God, but they're assuming some kind of uh, knowledge that the Bible simply doesn't disclose. Mm. And believe me, COVID-19 is bad, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. Oof, my goodness. When half of the world's population is eradicated in the uh, tribulation period. And so as I tried to argue before, I think what's happening today is just a Genesis 3, Romans 8, you know, outworking of living in a fallen, cursed world. But it is not the direct judgment of God, as we will see one day. Okay, since we're speaking about the judgment of God for the sins of mankind, um, which, you know, we're thankfully, for believers, uh, forgiven. Praise God. Um, Let's go to a verse that's often taken out of context, and that is 2 Chronicles 7.14, um, if really, if, if they keep re- people keep reading, it's really interesting. It, it says, I will establish you. Um, I'm looking for the, the, the verse that, that followed that. Um, well, basically, it's a verse saying, if my people, spoken to the people of Israel at that time, and the principle now, the principle of repentance, of falling to our knees, of humility and prayer, there are principles that we can apply to, to the body of Christ, to Christians, but we, to grab that verse and use it on National Day of Prayer and Fourth of July and any other time, can you give us some perspective on people using that to ward off COVID-19? 
Yeah, and this is these are this is a famous verse as you mentioned, but God says in my people who are called by my name if they humble themselves, pray, <clears throat> seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. And I've noticed that people alongside of that are quoting 2nd Chronicles 20 verse 9 in the midst of COVID-19, which said, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you and cry to you in our distress, and you will deliver us. And the thing to understand about the Second Chronicles passage is it was given to the nation of Israel when they were functioning under the prior age of the law. And what they had was the Mosaic Covenant. According to Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, the Mosaic Covenant was not given to any nation other than the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. And the Mosaic Covenant, if you want a fancy name for it, it's what's called a suzerain-vassal treaty. Suzerain, superior, vassal, inferior. It was a common treaty structure in the ancient Near East, where an inferior would would come under the protective care of a superior, and if the inferior obeyed the covenant text, then the superior would tangibly bless the vassal, and if the vassal hmm. dis disobeyed, then the superior would curse the inferior wow. or the vassal. And you can see that the whole book of Deuteronomy is laid out like a suzerain-vassal treaty. And in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14, are blessings for obedience for Israel. And then Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 68, are curses for disobedience. And one of those curses actually is pestilences. Deuteronomy 28, verse 21. So all of that to say, what is Second Chronicles 7, verse 14 talking about? What it's talking about is the nation of Israel in that time period had to go back to the covenant text and obey it. And if they did that, then God was obligated to repeal the curses. One of them is pestilences. And he was obligated to prosper their crops you know, um, et cetera. And so, you know, for people to take that and apply it to the United States, yes. the reality of the situation is the United States, I love the United States, but to my knowledge, God never made a covenant with the United States. No. Um, we made a covenant with him, you know, in the Mayflower Compact, but Israel has something different. They have a covenant coming from God to Israel. She's the only nation that's ever had this. Genesis 15, verse 18 says, In that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And so what we have to understand is Second Chronicles 7, verse 14 is, is not aimed at the United States. Right. It's aimed at the nation of Israel under the prior dispensation as she was functioning under the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant. And if you really want to open up Pandora's box, <laughs> Malachi 3, you know, verses 8 through 11, you know, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, you know that passage. Yes. You put that under that category, too. And, you know, when it says, I'll heal their land, everybody thinks that's America, mm -hmm. but the land there is the land of Israel. 
I realized that the letters USA show up in Jerusalem, the word Jerusalem, but <laughs> the, the passage isn't really speaking that, of that. So we don't really have the kind of relationship with God that Israel had, where if they did X, God was obligated to do Y, because Israel was the covenanted nation, mm-hmm. and, and the only nation that's had this suzerain vassal treaty. I know I just ruined a lot of preaching uh, for Fourth of July. Uh, that's things, funny. But. No, I, I appreciate that. That's context. That's what we need to understand. We are under a new covenant, the New Testament, but people get confused by verse 14 in Second Chronicles 7, where it says, people who are called by my name, and we're going, well, wait, we're Christians? Uh, we're the body of Christ. We're, we're called by his name. But that was, again, specific to Israel, because if you go about down to verse 19, if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and serve other gods and worship them, first of all, Pastor Andy, did Israel do just that? Well, she the whole 800 years there that she was <laughs> in the land after the time of Joshua is just one example after another of disobedience, Mm -hmm. and that's why God kept sending prophets saying, if you guys don't turn around, these curses you're under are going to get worse, and finally they're going to culminate in you being evicted from your own land. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you look at it that way, I'm sort of glad we're not Israel. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Because I think God would have kicked us out of the United States territory a long time ago. Oh, we would have been gone. Yeah. yeah, we would have been gone. But he said in verse 20, you just paraphrased it, then I will uproot you from my land and this house which I have consecrated, I will cast out out of my sight. And uh, this is kind of incredible if you read Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, the judgments of God on his chosen people because they had the revelation from God. So they had no excuse compared to the pagan nations around them, right? They were doing the same thing, following the same uh, gods and false gods, idolatry and everything else, and they knew better. That's why God judged them so harshly, correct? Yeah, and, you know, the other thing to understand about this is um, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Second Chronicles, they're not giving new truth here. The, the, tr- the principle of blessing and curses under the treaty was already articulated all the way back in the time of Moses, you know, 1,500 years before the time of Christ, in Deuteronomy 28, and there's a, pa- a parallel passage that describes the same thing in Leviticus 26. And so people have called Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 the spine of the Old Testament, because all Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Second uh, Chronicles, and all these passages we're referring to, all they're doing is reiterating the principle mm-hmm. of discipline that God has already articulated in the time of Moses. So there's a reason why the, the, the data concerning the curses and blessings is revealed first, and the rest of the Bible is just sort of amplifying what God already said he would do, all the way back in the time of Moses in covenantal form. Wow, so much. This is great because you never know what direction sometimes uh, we're going to take here in in the podcast. And and just by bringing up certain scriptures and talking about context, and I know you would probably agree with the fact that we often wrongly say, what does this scripture mean to me? Instead of saying, what did God mean and who is he speaking to and what is the context of this scripture? 
Yeah, you know, when people say, what does it mean to me, you know, instead of exegesis, you know, I like to call that narcissism, <laughs> you know, where it's all about me, right? Yes. Well, the reality of the situation is application is the, is the last step in proper Bible study method. The first step is to establish meaning. What does it mean? What did it mean to the original audience? There's nothing wrong with applying it, but we have to apply it, you know, uh, correctly. Mm-hmm. And so the problem today is we're very self-centered, and we think the whole world revolves around us. And so I want to look at the Bible and see myself in every passage. I think there's even a song we sing, you know, every promise of the book is mine, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is you have to look at context very carefully, because some passages apply directly to Israel, some apply to the church. And you have to understand what age of time we're living in. We're living in the church age, the age of grace. We're not functioning under the age of the law, as these Second Chronicles 7.14 passages are functioning under. And frankly, I'm glad we're not, because the penalties look pretty severe to me, as you as you well said. Yes. So the last step in Bible study method is what is it? How does it apply to me? The first step is meaning, and the problem that we're having today is is your pastors typically are not developing meaning in the pulpit. They're jumping immediately to application because they want to be relevant. I'm a pastor. I want to be relevant. I want to be timely. And quite frankly, a lot of people don't have a lot of patience to to sit and listen to what it actually means before we get to application. Hmm. And pastors want to grow their churches. You know, I understand all that. But in the process, we're getting really sloppy with our Bible interpretation. Yes. We've got to get meaning first. We've got to be patient enough to get meaning mm-hmm. and then move to application secondarily. Now, we've got to take a break, but um, wrongly, we often ask the question, how can we attract more people and grow in numbers as a church? And that's if once you start doing that, then you start going to the methods that are wrong. We are speaking with Dr. Andy Wood, senior pastor of Sugarland Bible Church in Texas. He's also president of Schaefer Theological Seminary. A whole lot more when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up for the Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Dr. and Pastor Andy Woods, Sugarland Bible Church in Texas, and his website, AndyWoodsMinistries.org. We are going to Ask the question now. Um, we know a lot of us are praying for our leaders. We're praying for those in the health industry, healthcare nurses, doctors, emergency workers, um, to protect them as they are treating patients who have the coronavirus. Um, how, I guess we should ask, how should Christians pray about God halting COVID 19 and protecting us? Because we've seen some word faith people you know, speak to the virus and, you know, shout it down and w- different methods. I, I obviously I wasn't going to say this, but I saw a video with Kenneth Copeland had some oil on his hands or something, and he's reaching out like he's going to, you know, just stop this whole thing. And I, I want to give people a correct understanding of how we can pray about this, Andy. Right. Well, you know, that's a really good question because you have what is, today called the prosperity gospel 
actually this has been going on for several decades, um, the little gods doctrine. So mm. the particular man, you know, that you mentioned, it's been well established that he sees himself as a little god, and he sees himself as a kid of the king. Mm-hmm. And consequently, he believes in what's called the prosperity theology, where his position basically gives him a right to health and wealth. And if people are not experiencing that as Christians, what it means is they don't have enough faith. In other words, they haven't learned to access these verbal laws where you can actually command these things into existence. And I'm sad to say that a lot of the president's spiritual advisors, yes. you look at some of them, Not there's some good people on there, but mm-hmm. a lot of them are connected with this doctrine, too. You know, some might call it the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And so that's why you have this mentality in people, you know, that they can command viruses out of existence <laughs> and be rich and buy these $50 million airplanes all within, you know, being a Christian. And the reality of the situation is no such doctrine exists in the Bible. Now, I do believe that our prayers are very, very powerful. Uh, James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 says, The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Mm -hmm. Elijah was a man with a like nature as ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I've got no problem asking God to intervene. I think he's done that many times miraculously in American history. But the reality of the situation is what we have to ask is, according to 1 John 5, verse 14, if we ask according to his will, he hears us. Mm, So we're always to, you know... uh, temper our prayer language with, Lord, you know, this is what I want, but you're not, I'm not the boss. <laughs> Thank God for that, right? Yeah. Yes. You're the boss, and it's, it's not my will, but thy will be done. And see, that is lost in the little God's doctrine. In the little God's prosperity gospel doctrine, God is basically like a cosmic bellhop that's, you know, responsible to respond to our every whim, and we don't have that kind of relationship with the Lord. So, yeah, let's pray, and Mm -hmm. God works powerfully through the prayers of his people, but let's not get confused on this, where we think we're in charge, and God is obligated to answer our prayer requests if we access these right verbal laws in faith, you know, the way the prosperity little God's doctrine teaches it. I really, I look at some of the people that have suffered, and I consider when they look at some of these, you know, word, faith, prosperity preachers, those with, quote, healing ministries, I can't help but wonder how many unbelievers would say or ask, why aren't they going to the hospitals to help people, to pray over people, to heal people, and in, they're shutting down their churches. They're not allowing people in. It's, it just it seems kind of hypocritical. So can you shed some light on that, Pastor Andy, that how an unbeliever would perceive this? And I know this is speculation, but I think it's very clear. It's a fair question to ask. Why aren't they, if they believe these things, why are they just standing behind a camera in the privacy of their own studio or home or whatever? Why aren't they going out and really doing, helping people who need help and need to be healed? 
Right. Well, that's a great point, because you test a doctrine not only based on what it says, is it biblical or not, obviously, as a first test, but you ask yourself, does this work consistently? Mm. And, you know, the funny thing about the prosperity gospel is it has a tendency to stop once you get outside the borders of America, (laughs) because third world countries, you know, don't have the economy to give people prosperity. And so there's. I've been to the Philippines mm-hmm. mission trips and things. I know, David, you've done your share of trips like that, mm-hmm. and you see some of the most godly people ever in the third world, and they don't have prosperity. They're living in these little, you know, kind of thatched huts and things like that. And so you, you say to yourself, the, the prosperity gospel, I mean, how would it preach over here? Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of troubling, um, you know, that people are promoting this idea, and it's also sort of sad, and you alluded to this, that that happens to be the most dominant doctrine on so-called Christian media. Mm, And so your average person tunes into that, and they think this is Christianity, when in reality it's not Christianity. It really... It really has more to do with the mind science cults and self-empowerment, and the Bible is sort of warped to make it fit that pre-existing grid. It's not Christianity at all. Yeah, it's self-help. And I was saddened to see one of the most famous motivational speakers, um, Pastor Joel Osteen, uh, on, I think it was Fox News, or maybe it was on another program, he was being interviewed about this coronavirus, about how his church is handling it. I'm thinking... I was actually watching, listening to his words, and he had nothing of substance to share other than his general, you know, God is going to be in this to bless people and bring you back. It's just positive thinking. And I'm going, oh, Lord, please. He could use his platform to minister to people who really need to hear the truth of Christ, but instead it's fluff and cotton candy and my heart just sank a little bit. I have to admit, and we've been we've known about his, you know, preaching for so long. We've talked about it. But and I understand, Andy, why people want are attracted to that. They want to believe it's true. But there's so much that can lead you astray that God wants everyone to be healthy or wealthy or prosperous. He he wants you to visualize a good car, bigger bigger uh house or better job or a bigger fat bank account. But that's it's it's such a disservice to the scriptures as far as a, a teacher goes. Yeah, well, you know, with Joel Osteen, he's sort of a, a stone's throw from where I am. His church is about twenty minutes, you know, or so from where I live, and wow. I've watched some of his broadcasts, and it's very interesting how he gets up there and they they kind of hold their Bible up, and he has this kind of chant that they go through: "This is my Bible; I will be taught from it today," etc. Then he <laughs> Then he puts it down, and then he gives a talk that sounds, you know, more like Robert Schuller or, um, you know, some positive-thinking preacher mm-hmm. than anything related to the Bible. And I've watched him on certain shows where the unsaved pagan host is correcting his theology, saying, well, you're not supposed to say that. What you're <laughs> supposed to say is Jesus is the only way, and homosexuality is a sin, and so this is where we are today in modern-day evangelicalism, where our biggest spokespersons are actually being corrected by the unsaved world in terms of their theology. And so, you know, 
God help us, but the reality of the situation is he has a big audience because he Millions. tells people what they want to hear. Yes, itching ears. I mean, I, I'd like to hear that, too. I, want to be, I get to be rich and healthy as a divine right, and it relates to what Paul you know, said to Timothy there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, around verse uh, 3 and following, about how in the last days they're going to assemble for themselves teachers that tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And they're going to turn aside from the truth and turn aside to myths. And when Christianity is morphed into a Norman Vincent Peale kind of presentation, then it's no longer Christianity. It's a myth. Possibility thinking. And it's all about success in this life. Um, yeah, I, I don't, don't have time to get into it because I saw a video years ago, actually an interview with him when Mitt Romney was running for president, and Joel Osteen's answer was, well, Mormons are Christians. Anyway, don't have enough time to dissect that one because I think most of our listeners already know that. I don't want to preach to the choir. But it is right. Good Friday. Um, we are just celebrating the fact that, and it, you know, it seems odd to call it good because of the suffering Servant and and we've got uh, about four minutes left, Pastor Andy. Just please encourage our listeners with the hope that we have, and get our minds off of what's happening in the country and the world, and back to the cross and the resurrection. Right. Well, it's easy to lose hope in this type of climate, but as we approach uh, Resurrection Sunday, um, you know, typically we teach the resurrection as it's proof that Jesus is God, and that's true, but. There's another part of the message that sometimes gets left behind. Jesus, his resurrection is called the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 and verse 23. And first fruits was part of the Jewish harvest cycle where the initial crop came in. And if the initial crop came in, everybody was very hopeful because the rest of the crop was destined to come in as well. Mm. And that's how to look at Christ's resurrection. It doesn't just prove he's God. Certainly it does that. But it's the first fruits in the sense that it put into motion a chain reaction, which is going to lead to, guess what, my resurrected body. And we need one of those mm. uh, because <laughs> Romans 8.23 says we're currently groaning. Mm. Our bodies are decaying, and if you don't believe me, just break out your high school yearbook and compare it to your modern-day driver's license <laughs> picture, and you'll see you need a new body desperately. And the world that we're living in is groaning, and we're moving towards a world where, according to Revelation 21, verse 4, says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death, mourning, crying, or pain for the first things have passed away. And so because Jesus bodily came out of that grave,